Well, welcome. Good to see you here today. Uh, it's good to, when you get our age, it's good to be anywhere. Uh, so we're glad we're here today. And uh, I know we didn't make an announcement about it today, but those Christmas shoe boxes are still out there. And uh, I wanted to share that I've been, uh, one of my assignments in ministry was I spent quite a few years traveling to Africa and led a lot of teams there, a lot of pastor teams, also led a lot of college teams to Africa. And I was in Mozambique one time with about uh, 12 college students from Eugene, Oregon. And they opened up a big shipping container. It was just full of the Christmas shoe boxes. It was awesome. And they give them there on June 1. And the reason they give them there on June 1 is it's bigger than Christmas. It's called Children's Day. And at Christmas in Mozambique, among the Christians and the culture there, it's not a big gift day. Christmas isn't there. Uh, but it's the big gift day when children get gifts is on June 1. And so I was able to help distribute Christmas shoe boxes on June 1. So it's kind of like Christmas in June. And uh, it was pretty awesome. And I took some pictures of kids. And we went back to the church we were pastoring at the time. And uh, I think I got the trips here mixed up a little bit, but the, here's what happened. We went back and are showing pictures, and a lady in our church jumps up and goes, that's the white sweater I put in a Christmas shoe box. And so I actually, of all the, you know, these Christmas shoe boxes are put in giant containers and flown all over the world to disaster areas, to poor areas, to uh, famine areas, and all those things. And I just happened to be in a place where at least one of the shoe boxes from our church was opened up and the little girl had the sweater and a couple other things. And so it was without a shadow of a doubt that I was able to show the pictures to somebody in our church of a little girl who received this. And I've, we've, I've been seeing those children and what they cherish in those shoe boxes. You would not believe what it means to them to receive something in a shoe box. And of course, there's restrictions of what we can send, but whether it's a little car, a little dolly, uh, a hair scrunchie, uh, anything like that, the sweater, the little hat, whatever it is, it means so much. So I, we're so excited that your church participates in that. Every church we led and pastored over the years, we did the Christmas shoe boxes. And the great thing is it allows the children to be involved, right? You can go shopping together as a family, and you can say, what do you want to send over there? Are we going to send a girl or a boy box? And what age group are we going to be in? And so i just uh, so excited that you're doing that. Secondly, I want to tell you that Carol and I have visited a lot of churches over 40 years of ministry. We've been uh, in many, I visited churches in many parts of the world, but uh, especially here in the United States, Carol and I have been to a lot of churches, as sometimes guest pastors, sometimes just uh, visiting the church. And we want you to know that maybe this is the greatest friendly church we've ever visited. I, I want to tell you, it's rare. Yes, my wife and I applaud you. Take a bow, everybody. Take a bow. Yeah. All right. You are amazing how many people have come to talk to us, to say hi to us, and uh, you would believe how rare that is. It's really sad that you can go visit a church and nobody talks to you. Nobody says anything to you. And, uh, and even the time when it says, well, turn around and greet somebody, they just kind of, it's like a mechanical thing, and uh, they don't really care. But you guys have just overwhelmed us. We meet so many people every week. We can't remember all the names, so forgive us for that. We'll get them down, hopefully, but uh, just uh, don't lose that. That's awesome. 
If somebody can, maybe you're visiting here today. Again, I'm so new, I don't know. Maybe there's a visitor here or not. To me, you're all visitors, just about, okay? And so uh, we're glad you're here, and I hope that if you're a visitor, you feel that love from people. And we just want it to be a place where you experience the love we've experienced and th through this great God who we've sung about, who's so good, so good. Well, uh, we're taking a journey through uh, Jonah for the next few weeks. And um, if you have your Bibles, if you'd open up to Jonah, and uh, he's one of the prophets that comes after the big prophets in there. Uh, he's after Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah and those guys. And uh, he's a, uh, wait a minute, where is he? Yeah, I can't find him. Um, I'm trying to find him. Come back here, Jonah. All right. I think mine, I was looking at a page number, but I went wrong on that one, I think. Oh, yeah, it's 10 Obadiah. I think, it, I think it's right here. Right is. Yep, okay. I actually had my ribbon in there, but I didn't use that. Sorry. Okay. Uh, Jonah's been really a great, uh, beautiful, beautiful uh, book for me as God's un, un, uh, unwrapped it for me and unpacked it. And I pray that you can go on some of the journey that God's taken uh, Carol and I on just this last week. Uh, we've been confronted uh, by Jonah right now in our church, uh, the group that we church uh, teach every Friday morning. Carol and I help oversee uh, a group of our senior citizens in our church. There was last week about 82 of them gathered, and we are going through the book of First Peter. So we were in the midst of that teaching, and we encountered something, a relationship we had, and we saw that the lessons God had taught us out of Jonah, as Carol and I have studied this, that oh my gosh, we're being just like Jonah. Because Jonah in this book is not the hero. But I want you to know that he probably wrote the book. They believe that he probably wrote it and exposed all of his flaws and how far he was from God. So that shows us, even though the book of Jonah kind of ends without resolve, you don't know if Jonah got it. You don't know what happens. It's just kind of one of those things that ends like, well, what's the next chapter? God must have forgot something. It, the fact that he wrote it shows you that he got it. He got it in the end because he was able to say, here's where I didn't get it. And, uh, and only somebody that felt secure in understanding God and his love for others would be able to write that. So we're going to go through this. Just a quick review uh, as we do this. I think I have a slide up there. Yeah. So uh, let's just go to the, a quick review of some uh, of the first three verses. We're going to go beyond this, but just to read these together. It says, the word of the Lord. Let me pray first. I always do better when I do that. Thank you, Lord. Thanks, Father, for your word. Thank you that you've preserved this book, four chapters that are monumental, that Jesus, you referred to the book of Jonah uh, a few times in your preaching and teaching on this earth, and, and uh, that can't be said of all the books of, of the Old Testament. And so, Lord, uh, teach us. Give us ears to hear what you're saying. Open our hearts. Lord, uh, come and rearrange things that are not in accordance with your will, and that we would come out of this being more like you, more, more love, more uh, graciousness, more mercy, more understanding your love for this creation and this world. We thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right. It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, now, that meant something to, uh, if you go back in 2 Kings, it talks about Jonah as one of the prophets. So this isn't the only place Jonah's got his name in the Bible. 
He, is, he appears in the book of 2 Kings, and so he was the son of a prominent man, Amittai. But uh, then it says, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Remember, a key great city. They believed that this thing was very big. We're going to get to that in, uh, in a little while. It took a few days to walk across it. We've got to examine what that means. But it was a major city, at least in prominence. Uh, it was in Nineveh. It was uh, just the capital of, that, of those people. And preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So God knew that this place was having a hard time. It was wicked, and it was rising. That wickedness was kind of rising as a stench in God's nostrils. And he says, I want you to go to preach to it. And uh, the problem is, if you go preach to it, God wouldn't send Jonah unless it was an opportunity for the Ninevites to repent. All right? And so this is what bothered Jonah. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for the port, for that port, and after paying the fare, went aboard and sailed to Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And so the next one is a little map of uh, just a review. If you weren't here last week, we just talked about Joppa being here. This is Israel. And so Jonah went, Israel right here. So Jonah went, got the word of the Lord somewhere in here. He was praying or maybe he was uh, doing his daily work in the temple. He gets uh, a word from the Lord. I want you to go to Nineveh and preach against this evil city and these uh, enemies of Israel. But he says, no way. He goes down to Joppa, pays for fare, and sells for Tarshish, which scholars don't exactly know where, but here we put it on the coast of Spain. And they think that's where he was, but notice a difference in mileage. Uh, it was only 550 miles to travel to Nineveh, but it's 2,500 miles. In other words, this is as far away as Jonah could get from them. All right, we'll go on the next slide there. Okay, so Jonah the prophet loved his country and his people, but God asked him to go to the enemy and preach repentance. Jonah could not imagine that God could forgive and shed mercy on the Ninevites. They were the hated, evil, terrorist enemy of those days. Israel prophets went to Israelites. They didn't go to the pagans. God always sent the prophets to his own people to say, you've lost your first love or you've uh, sinned against me, come back to me. But this is the first time we see a prophet sent not to Israel, but to pagans. So God, serve out of justice. Okay, God, serve out justice to Ninevites, not mercy. Now, that's not an actual quote in the book of Jonah. I put it in quotes by saying this is kind of what Jonah's thinking. God, you better serve out justice, not mercy, because if I go to preach your mercy, there's a chance I'll receive that, and they don't deserve that. Okay, next. This is a little background. Okay, so now... Let's go on in the book of Jonah, and we'll, start, we'll go through uh, kind of a section of scriptures here today, verses 4 through 6. This is continues of Jonah fleeing from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to their own God. Now let's stop there for a minute. These are seasoned sailors. These are guys that made this run all the time. This is their ship that they are pilots of. They uh, may not own it, but they're hired to get the produce, the passengers, and everything out across the Mediterranean headed towards, it looks like, the coast of Spain. So this has to be a storm above normal storms. There can be really heavy storms on the Mediterranean Sea. And so these guys aren't neophytes. These guys aren't like, oh, a storm. What are we going to do? They live through all kinds of storms. So this was 
a storm of storms. This is bigger than normal, all right? And I think there's a typhoon hitting Japan right now, isn't there? That's uh, the biggest one in 60 years. So it's that kind of level. So, uh, and God threw, well, okay, so, and the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. So we know that they're not Jewish sailors. We know that they're uh, pluralistic. There's many different gods represented on this boat in religions and faiths. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below the deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. We're going to talk about that. It's a strange behavior, but not so strange when you think about it. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call in your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. All right, we'll go to the next slide now. So there's a background. Okay, we talked about this last week. Sin always produces a storm. The storm in the book of Jonah is a result of Jonah's sin of running and disobeying God. The storm affected all around him. All, everybody on the ship was in peril and other ships out in the ocean at that time. Storms in our own lives are either from our own sin or from the sin of others or the result of being in a fallen, broken world. We talked about we all go through storms, but the promise that God gives us in Romans 8.28 is all things can happen for the good of those that believe and love our God, and he can use it for our growth in him, whether it's caused by our own brokenness or by those around us. And there's mercy deep inside our storms, a quote by Tim Keller. There's mercy to be found deep in the storms of our life. Just as Jesus, they watched him die on the cross, that was a huge storm to everybody that was following him and said, how can this be? How can he uh, bring good from this? It looks like the one that was supposed to be our king is dying. But we find great mercy in the cross because he rises again and sheds his forgiveness on all of us. Okay, so we're going to go on that. Just a quick review of storms. So let's go on to more. I want to talk about common grace. I'm going to talk about uh, this doctrine, which we, I don't know, maybe you've discussed it in church here before. I know it's not talked about much outside of theological circles, but there's two kinds of, uh, and maybe more than two, but two main kinds of grace that we talk about that we see in the Bible, common grace, and then we see special grace, or we call common revelation or special revelation. Psalm 19 deals with that. It talks about the sun, the moon, the stars, all of creation speaks of God. And then it says, and then the word of God. So there's a general revelation that there is a God, a God who's created, a God of beauty, a God of order. But then in the second part of Psalm 19, it says, but the word of God has been given to us. It's sweeter than any other, uh, sweeter than any honey, more valuable than gold. And, uh, but instead of calling it today revelation, I want to call it grace, special gifts given to people, commonly all people in the world. So here's what the doctrine says. Now, you might think, do I need to know this? Yes. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Because this is one of the big aspects in this first chapter of Jonah that we need to get our arms around because it explains to us why the sailors are the heroes of this first part of Jonah and how Jonah is the failure. The sailors are doing the right thing. Jonah's doing the wrong thing. So how could the sailors worshiping all these other gods know and work for the common good to try to save every life on the ship? They were even sacrificing 
the cargo, probably which they'd get paid for. They're throwing that over the side, not to just to save their own necks, but every life on the ship. What causes people who don't know our God, who do not know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who do not know the God who is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who do not know the God of goodness and mercy who we sung about this morning, to do good things, even better things sometimes than believers do. Have you ever met a non-believer that's such an awesome person that they act more like Jesus than some of us Christians? Anybody ever met that kind of person? I think most of us have, right? You go, wow, this guy must, or this lady, they, they're just awesome. We call it, there's fruit of the Spirit all over their lives. They're kind, they're good, they're generous, they're joyful. They're all those things, and they have no relationship with the living God. How does that happen? Well, we believe God reveals to us in his word uh, this principle of common grace. And so here it is. The doctrine of common grace is the teaching that God bestows gifts of wisdom, moral insight to know right and wrong, goodness and beauty across humanity, regardless of race or religious belief. Everyone who's been born on this earth since its creation live under the common grace of God. He bestows gifts and beauty upon people. I remember walking. We lived in Eugene, Oregon for a while, and before we even moved there, our kids did. And they have a Saturday market there, you know, with a farmer's market, but it's like no other. There is like, <laughs> there's people praying for people. Christians are praying for people at the farmer's market. And then there's people re reading tarot cards. There's astrologists. There's all kinds of weird Eastern religion people you can go talk to. It's just a giant um, cacophony of religion and uh, of different belief systems. But the Christians are there praying for people. But we walk up and there's this guy playing his piano on the street. And he's selling CDs. He has a little piano. It's uh, smaller than, than 88 keys. It's one of those more miniature, but a beautifully tuned a wooden piano. Got great resonance. And he's praying. And I'm walking towards this piano. And I'm struck by the beauty of this pianist. It almost floors me. I can feel the beauty of God. I can feel the music of God. I can feel a, a touch and a divine connection with heaven through this guy's music on the piano. And so I sit and talk with it, stand, not sit, but standing by the side of his piano, listen to him, and in between break songs, I try to talk to him. He's not a believer. I look at his albums. He has no relationship with God, but he's being given a gift by God of music, and that comes under this realm of common grace. You don't have to be a believer to have that. You, God just bestows his gifts of wisdom and moral integrity and beauty and creativity. Look at the art that's been done by people who are not believers. That's common grace that God pours out upon mankind. Now, James 1.17 talks about this a little bit. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. In other words, if we see it good, if we see it perfect, I saw that guy's musical gift as very good. It came from the Father, whether he knew it or not. I said, wow. And I believe I told him, I said, God's really gifted you. And he went, well, I practice a lot. Something like that, you know. He wasn't ready to acknowledge that, that God had given him this gift. Then other references to common grace are found throughout Scripture. I'm not going to go through these right now, but most of you, if you've been in the church a while, know these. There was a Cyrus who was a pagan king God used for world leadership at the beginning of Isaiah 45. It really confused the Jews. God said, I'm going to raise up Cyrus 
He wasn't even a, a Jew. He said, he's going to be my leader and do my will at this time. That's common grace. God uses people who aren't believers to bring about goodness in our society. Um, Isaiah 28, 23 through 29 is a great little section about a farmer given wisdom to farm with no indication that he has a revelation or relationship or a covenant with God. It's just God says, I give to the farmer wisdom so that he can plant his crops, harvest. It lists different crops planted there. And uh, that's a great little section to study about common grace, how God just, support, uh, just pours it upon people. And then Psalm 145, 14 through 16, which we'll talk about in a minute. So let's go to the next slide. All right. So common grace does not regenerate the heart. It doesn't save the soul or create a personal covenant relationship with God. Yet without it, the world would be an intolerable place to live. It's God's expression of love to all people. So it doesn't save people. It doesn't bring them into a relationship with them. But it helps keep order in the world. And it helps, uh, helps the world be tolerable. Even in the midst of the, the Hitlers and others, the Idi Amin's that have come along. Still in the midst of that, there's common grace that allows us to even be kind and good to each other, even if we don't have a relationship with God. All right. Let's go on to the next slide. This is, I believe, the Psalm 145 I told you about. So here, here is a scripture that I thought just so easily and brightly points out common grace. The Lord upholds all who fall, all who fall, not just believers, not just Jews, not just God's chosen people. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. Now, it seems bowed down here, would that mean in worship? That probably just means humbled. That means having a hard time going through a rough life. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Every living thing is, is, uh, receives the common grace of God. That could be argued, since it does say bowed down, that these are worshipers of God. But the scripture itself in the original Hebrew seems to be more expansive than that. And the word all seems to mean all, not just the God's chosen people or just not those in worship with him. But all people are given food and he opens his hand graciously to all. All right, so let's go on. This thing of common grace is important in understanding the book of Jonah. So Jonah received a special grace, though. He's got a special grace, not just common grace. He received a word from God. Now, a word from God is not available to humans through reason or wisdom. You just can't get there if you're even Einstein. Einstein, being a Jew, not in a relationship with Jesus, but a chosen people, at least by race. We don't know if he practiced Judaism. At least I don't. Maybe you do. But one of the smartest minds and helped further the goodness of human beings upon this earth through his theories and understanding. Now, uh, but he could never get a word from God through his brain or his reasoning. So common grace explains why non-believers can often act more righteously than believers despite their lack of faith. Whereas us believers, still battling sin within us, often act far worse than our trust and belief in God would lead us to expect. Sometimes we act much worse than we would expect us to act, either collectively or individually. We can have some real times of faltering, whereas sometimes the non-believer can have times of real shining love and goodness upon mankind. All right, so let's go on. 
We're going to get there. All right, so Jonah's got this special grace given to him. Go to Nineveh and preach. But the sa- he's running away. Now the sailors, under common grace, are doing the right thing. The pagan sailors were outshining Jonah. Christians should be humble. So what does this all mean? It means Christians should be humble and respectful towards those who do not share our faith. They should appreciate the work of all people, knowing that nonbelievers have many things to teach us. Uh, some people, have you ever heard it? Maybe it has been argued in this church. Maybe uh, it's come up with the pastor's sermons over the years. But it's been debated, are, is all truth God's truth? You ever heard that question? If the truth comes from somebody who's not a believer and spoken into a situation that brings resolve, did that come from God or not? And I believe the Bible teaches all truth is God's truth. Whether the person acknowledges it comes from God, whether the person has a relationship with God, if it's a true statement at the time to address the situation in the room or in a life or in the government or in the world, that we believe God sheds that upon us by his common grace. Okay, let's go to the next one. All right, so let's talk about this common grace a little bit when Jesus is teaching the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is a radical teaching by Jesus. I hope most of you are familiar with it. If not, I'll just do it a quick review. There's a man traveling down to Jericho from Jerusalem, and uh, it's a narrow little, I've been there, it's a narrow little valley. You go through big rocks where robbers can hide. It's a very precarious place. He's going down. Robbers jump out, beat him up, steal him, all his stuff, and leave him for dead. Along comes two religious men, one a, one a priest, one a Levite. They come walking along, and they see him, and they walk on the other side. They just go, ooh, I don't want to mess with that. This is like, ooh, first of all, I don't know who he is. I don't know if he's one of us. And I don't want to get involved. So Jesus is teaching this parable. And then, so he's left for dead. Then comes a Samaritan coming down the road. Now you need to understand Samaritans were hated by the Jews. They, they were half-breeds. They were people who uh, had Jews who had interbred with some of the occupying uh, people who had taken over Israel at times. And so they didn't even consider them pure. And you see Jesus in the conflict with Samaritan at the woman at the well, or he's overcoming that conflict. The men, when he's talking to the woman at the well, everybody's freaked out because, and they're walking through Samaria. Most Jews walked around Samaria. Jesus confronted this prejudice in their life all the time. And so he tells them this good Samaritan comes down. He goes over, he bandages the man. He gives him water. He takes care of him. He loads him on his donkey. He takes him to an inn or what we call the emergency room. He takes him to the emergency room, stays there with him as they fix him up. They're going to keep him for a couple days. And then the good Samaritan says, I will pay you for taking care of him. Now, Jesus says how he got into this parable. First of all, the Jews asked him, Tell us what the greatest law is. And Jesus said, what do you think it is? And they said, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But trying to justify themselves, getting them out of like trying to love everybody, they said, well, who is our neighbor, Jesus? And then he tells them that parable. And so he says at the end, which of the three people did the right thing, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? And then they sheepishly, probably with dropped eyes, And lowered voices says, well, I guess 
the one who had mercy on him, who was a Samaritan. And that would have been so hard from there to admit. A Samaritan outshined the Jewish religious leaders, outshined the church. The Samaritan was better, and they are like uh, the wrong people. They are the people who are polluted. They are the people we don't like. They don't belong in our country. They were just uh, scum to the Jew. And for Jesus to make the Samaritan the hero of the parable was shocking, scandalous. I, Jesus loved to rock people's worlds. And uh, I hope in, he's done this for me in studying the book of Jonah. So we can see there uh, the parable of Good Samaritan. It's radical teaching. Jonah is the opposite of the Good Samaritan. He's not working for the common good. Jonah was asleep. He wasn't saying, all right, how can I save this ship? And he knows that this storm is because of him. But he's not going, I'm sorry, guys. Let me see. Let me pray up here. Let me do something to help. Maybe God will forgive my disobedience. Or let me help you throw cargo over. Or let me help you take the sails down before the mass breaks. Let me be a part of the solution because I'm in this too, and really it's caused by me. But what does he do? He goes down below and goes into a deep sleep. One theologian called this, he goes into the, in the old days, they called this the sleep of sorrow. What would we call it today? Depression. <laughs> Depression. We take, hey, you got some pills? <laughs> you got something to help me? He's, he's depressed. He doesn't know what to do. Have you ever had such a bad day that all you want to do is go to sleep? I have, right? Like, man, I can't face this. I'm going to go. I'm just going to go to bed. Hope things are better in the morning. Uh, we all go through that at some levels. Maybe, you know, then we know there's clinical depression. We know that that has to be treated sometimes medically. We can pray for people, but sometimes uh, if God doesn't choose to miraculously heal them, we sometimes they take medication to get their dopamines and all their different chemicals in their brain are all messed up, and you have to get them back onto keel uh, before they can even sometimes receive the word of God. I've prayed for depressed college students, so depressed that I'd speak the, and at a Christian college, they couldn't even believe or receive the word of God uh, until we got them to a doctor and the doctor could kind of level out their hormone imbalances. Now, I, I believe in divine healing. I believe God can heal those. I, I believe and prefer that God does his miracle. But sometimes God uses the doctors to heal. Sometimes God uses that medicine to help us. And then we could speak the word of God to them and get them back on track. So here's, here's Jonah sleeping in depression, trying to escape all the problems. Uh, I don't want to go preach those people. They're the enemy. Now this storm is. God still wants me to go there. I don't want to deal with it. I can't deal with it. I, I, and he just goes to sleep in a depressive state, the sleep of sorrow, not respecting the non-believers around him. He wasn't there to help save their lives. He wasn't being a good Samaritan. He wasn't there. He didn't care about the people on the ship. All right, so let's go a little more. Now, that's a little bit of the common grace that the sailors are shining more than Jonah is because they're working for the common good to save the ship, to save the people, and get to port. All right? And so that explains why, why could they, if they were not believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because of the common grace poured upon them. So this helps me a lot to, to understand and receive from people who are not believers solutions to my problems, 
listen to their wisdom, even though they may not acknowledge Jesus on their lips, God, through his common grace, could have bestowed upon them a solution to a situation or a life. And so that's why we pray for those in leadership. Not all of them are Christians. It doesn't say our king has to be a Christian. It just says pray for them that they may know this common grace and wisdom and be gifted from God. It sure helps if they're a believer, but uh, we pray that way. Okay, let's go on. Verse 7 to 10. Then the sailors said to each other. So they went down and woke him up and said, you better start praying. Then the sailors are talking. Come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. Now, lots was a common thing. This is not rolling dice. This isn't gambling. This is just a way that God used a lot in the Old Testament to tell who people were. Most scholars believe that there were sticks on this boat. They took sticks or pieces of board, and they wrote the names of everybody on those sticks. This is many times how they did lots in those days. And then they just had somebody pick a stick, or they threw them down, and they saw which one turned up or I do, we don't exactly know how they did it but they would use usually sticks and write names on it and so somehow out of this pile of sticks Jonah's stick uh, emerges and say who's responsible so um, they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah so they asked him tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us in other words you must know it looks like the sticks said it's you know about this what kind of work do you do where do you come from, and what is your country? From what people are you? Now look at these questions. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country, and from what people are you? These are questions of basic identity. And everybody in here needs to have an answer to those questions. God in his word is telling us the answer to these questions are important to our life because Jonah had answered these questions, but they were messed up. And watch how he answers these in a minute. So here he goes. From what people are you? So here Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? In other words, if we have heard of this God, because these were sailors in Joppa on the coast of Israel, the Mediterranean, they know that these Jews worship a God that they call Yahweh, that they uh, call Jehovah, and that this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have heard this, this story. They know about this God, and these people claim this is the God who created everything. He made the land, the sea, the stars, the storm. He has control over the weather system. And so they grabbed, I don't know if they shook him by the tunic, but they said, what have you done? And they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. So somewhere up here, he had already spilled the beans and said, God told me to go to Nineveh and I'm running away. And they said, ah, oh, this is because of you. And we've been working our brains out, our muscles trying to save this ship. You've been sleeping. This isn't right. So you can see the sailors are still doing better than Jonah. And actually, the sailors in next week will talk about how they actually go into a worship service. All right, let's go to the next slide. All right, so sailors have concluded that the storm was a punishment for sin. The lots pointed to Jonah. And now the sailors are asking Jonah three things. So let me boil down those identity questions and these three things. What's your purpose? What was his purpose? Some people say, what's your mission in life? What's your purpose? What's your place? Where do you come from? Where's your country? And what's your race? Who are your people? Okay. 
So let's go on to the next slide. All right, so this is all about identity. Each of our identities has three layers, purpose, place, and people. Three Ps, hopefully you can remember those. Purpose, place, and people. This is so important to understand the book of Jonah and why Jonah is doing the wrong thing. Why didn't he follow God? He's a prophet of God. Why wouldn't he go to Nineveh? What was the problem? It's all because Jonah has this mixed up. Why do we not obey God sometimes? Why do we not do the right thing? Why do we do everything in society is doing even was against God? The new thing that drives young people, and I think old people too, but let me pick on young people, what drives many times 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds that I work with at our church is not what's right or wrong, but what's normal. What's normal. Right now, part of normality, when a young man and a young woman are dating, the, what's normal is what? Not to go to the altar first, but to do what? Move in with each other first. We move in, we stay together, we check this out, are we compatible? And then if it's kind of working, and we don't have a baby yet, we'll think about getting married. So that, and, and when I ask them, but God's word says we're not supposed to do it that way. It says sex is for in the covenant of marriage, and we should make that covenant with the young man or woman before we give them our body and go into an intimate relationship. Why don't you do that? And they go, well, everybody does it this way. This is what's normal. And so we live in a post-Christian society now, and it's not what's right or wrong. It's what's normal. And so this drives us today. Even Christian young people follow this behavior of it used to be cohabiting. Now it's even called cohabitating, that you date by living together. And why do Christian people, young people do that? Because they got these three Ps mixed up. They don't understand their purpose, place, or people. And maybe we don't either. And maybe we haven't taught them right. So let's look at this. The three Ps answer who you are. The sailors are not just asking this to find out about Jonah. But the real goal is to understand the God who has been angered. And they can so they can determine what to do. Okay, next slide. So they're trying to find out, how do we appease this God? These three things, purpose, place, and people, still determine our identity today. Everyone worships someone or something. To ask, who are you, is really to ask, whose are you? Whose are you? When somebody says, who are you, the really underlying bigger question is, whose are you? Who do you belong to? I remember Dallas Willard, one of the great Christian authors of the early 2000s, wrote some incredible books. I had the privilege of hearing him come to my seminary and speak in a special seminar. And he was a, the head of the philosophy department at USC, University of Southern California, which Notre Dame played yesterday. And I think Notre Dame won. Yay. Okay. Now, um, USC uh, is not a godly school. It is not considered Christian in any way. But he is a main Christian speaker into the Christian world in the 90s and the early 2000s. I had the privilege of seeing him a couple years before he died. Wrote some incredible books that we still comment and still quote. And he said one day he was in his office and he saw these two, these two uh, sophomore philosophy majors or junior somebody like that looking around the corner and peering at him. And then he could hear him talking out in the hall like, 
And he could hear, he said, excuse me, yes, young man, yes, can I help you? And they sheepishly came around the corner and looked in his office and said, oh, oh, oh hi, Dr. Willard. Um, we're just really confused. We've been at the library. And he says, well, what confused you? He said, we found your books in our library, and they're all about being a Christian and following God. Now, Dallas Willard is on the level of a C.S. Lewis. I mean, he is major Christian thinker and writer. And they said, we're so confused because you teach philosophy here. And philosophy is just like, you know, a hodgepodge of all these different beliefs and things. And how do you determine what's right and wrong? He said, we're just so confused. And his only answer to him, so they're standing there kind of like, we're waiting for the revelation. He just said, well, who would you have me follow? That's all he said. Well, who would you have me follow? And they had no answer. They just backed out his door and left. What he was saying is, can you find me a better person to follow? We all follow somebody. We all belong to somebody. Whose are you? I'll tell you whose who's I am. I belong to the God of all creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Trinity. That's who I follow. And we all have to answer that when somebody says, who are you? So these kids looking around the corner into his office are really saying, really, who are you? And he said, I'll tell you who I am by whose I am. If you have somebody better for me to follow, I'll consider it. But until then, I belong to Jesus. That's who I follow. So to know who you are is to know what you have, been, what you have given yourself to, what controls you. What is your most, where is your most fundamental trust? Where do you trust at the most fundamental level in your life? Let's go on. Next slide. Now, Jonah did not obey God because it was an identity issue. So why did Jonah, being a prophet, run away? And it's because he didn't have this right. People, place, and purpose. He got it mixed up. Because Jonah saw his identity as being first and foremost his ethnic group, not his call from God. Now, I have to stop and say one thing here that's so important. The book of Jonah is only four chapters. I went five. Four chapters. And either it's a brief work just quickly written down, or it is a masterful work of literature and art. And scholars who read it in the original Hebrew said that the book of Jonah is a masterful work of literature about God. And so even though it's brief, it's more like a poem than it is like a novel. You, you've, we've all read novels and we've all read poems, right? Novels, you can say a lot of things and take a lot of words to get there and eventually end up at page 423 and get your point across. But when you write a poem, you probably have only one one-thousandth of the words to use, if not less. And you've got to say a lot in a short space. And therefore, every word is important. And they believe the book of Jonah is more like a poem. Every word, the order of the words, are so important because they teach a principle. So it's not casual that Jonah answers this down here. He goes, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord. Do you notice here, he put his ethnic, ethnic, ethnicity, there it is, ethnicity before 
his belief system. He put his ethnicity, I'm a Hebrew, oh, and I worship God. I am a Jew, oh, and by the way, I worship God. He was saying, I'm a Jew who the Ninevites hate, who want to come down the Assyrians and murder us. And so I'm a Jew first, then I happen to be a follower of God. So I could ask you, who are you? Oh, I'm a Kodiite. Is that what you call them? Kodiites? Kodiols? Okay. I'm, a Kod- I'm from Cody, and I'm a Christian. Or do we answer, I'm a Christian. Oh, and I happen to be from Cody. Or for me, I'm half Hispanic. So I could say, who are you? Oh, I'm mostly Hispanic, and I'm a Christian. I would have it messed up. Because I need to say, I'm a Christian, then I am mostly Hispanic. Or the bigger question is, who are you? I'm an American. Oh, and I happen to be a Christian. I believe this has happened in the church in America. We at sometimes say we're Americans first before we're Christians. Our answer needs to say, we're Christians first. We want to do what Christians would do. Then, oh, by the way, I am in America And I am part of the American culture. All right. So do you see this? Jonah saw his identity as first and foremost, his ethnic group, not his call from God. Next slide. So when loyalty to his people, Jonah's people, and loyalty to the word of God seemed to be in conflict. Okay, go to the Ninevites and preach. But he's also loyal to his people. I'm a Hebrew. But God's special grace told him to go. Jonah chose to support his nation overtaking God's love and message to the Ninevites. God chose, I mean, Jonah chose to follow his ethnic racial identity before he chose to follow his worship of God. And so this is a shallow identity. I believe in my life, I need to have a deeper identity into God. That if people say, who am I? I answer with whose I am. I belong to the living God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord Jesus Christ, the father of lights. I, believe to, I, I belong to the Holy Spirit and his residence within me. Those are who I am. Then my Hispanic heritage, my American culture should have its place, but only after I've identified myself as a Christian. So this explains the Rwandan genocide in 1994. Some of you weren't alive in 1994. But does anybody remember the genocide? 1994? Millions were killed, in a, at least a million were killed in a short period of three months in Rwanda. I've been on the border of Rwanda. I've never crossed the border. I've been in southern Uganda, looked into Rwanda just a year before this happened. There were two tribes there, the Tutsis and the Hutus. The Tutsis and the Hutus, and they always kind of strive for dominance in the government and who has the positions of control, right? So there was an uprising. The the Tutsis were the minority, but they were oppressing the majority of the Hutus because they got the places of power. The Hutus decided we had enough of this, and they got out their machetes, and in three months slaughtered one million Tutsis hacked them to death in villages. They claim people who were there, the bodies were stacked so high, the stench so bad, that it was almost unbelievable that could happen in this day and age. 
But they did. They slaughtered them simply because they were a different tribe. So I've heard from my African friends this story. And this is important. If you haven't heard anything else, listen to this. There were Hutus and Tutsis living next door to each other. They went to the same church, just probably like this church. In early April before, 1994, before the genocide and the uprising and the fighting started, the Tutsis and Hutus went to the same church, and there was a little girl next door who was a Tutsi. No, is that right? Yeah, Tutsi. And her teacher was a, what's the other tribe? I got to mix up. Hutu. Whew. The Hutu. So her Sunday school teacher is Hutu. She's a Tutsi, but they go to the same church. Sunday they go to church. The next day she comes next door with a machete and kills the family next door because they were Hutus. Or, yeah, Tutsis. They were Tutsis. Kills them because they're Tutsis, and she was a Hutu. That day, and I want to tell you for the next three months, the Christians chose their race, their tribe, over being Christians. They said, we are Hutus or Tutsis before we're believers in God. And that's what Jonah did here. And that's what we can all do. If push came to shove in your life, would you remain faithful to Jesus? Or would you be more faithful to the Republican Party or to the Democratic Party? And I'm not, I don't believe we're supposed to bring those politics into, into our church necessarily like that. But I want to tell you, are we, do, are we, are we Christians first? Before we identify with a political party or before we identify with our nationality, who are we? Because one day in Rwanda, everything changed and people took their tribe ahead of their faith. And I always, I came away from that experience and hearing my African friends and they said the one thing that's killing Africa is tribalism and it's now entered America. It's like, this tribe has its own truth. This tribe has its truth. Well, that's your truth. That's not our truth. Oh, we believe this, but we stay in our little enclave over here. We are now into tribalism in America. And uh, you have to say, I, I, the only way I fight it in my own life is say, I now belong to a higher tribe. I belong to the tribe of the Lion of Judah, to Jesus Christ. That's the tribe that trumps every other identity in my life. It goes beyond my half Latino roots, my quarter German, my quarter French. It goes beyond my being born and raised in Colorado. It goes beyond being an American citizen. It goes beyond my, my uh, political affiliation. It goes beyond all of that. I belong to the Lion of Tribe of Judah. I am seated in heavenly places, and that should oversee anything in my life and my behaviors. And so would you ever imagine what would happen to you or me, if this kind of civil war broke out in America, how would we stay faithful to Jesus? That is why you have to get this down. We all have to. Let's go to the next slide. I think we're at, So I just, I think I'll end with this question. Who are you? What is your purpose? What is your place? And who are your people? 
Now, this purpose here has to be number one. When they asked Jonah, who are you? Who are you? You're the one causing this storm. He goes, I'm a, I'm a Jew. Oh, yeah, by the way, I worship God. He got that mixed up. He kind of said, he started at the bottom. I belong to the Jewish people. And then he said, my purpose. And then maybe he said where he came from. But I ask, whose are you? Or in other words, who do you worship? Who do we worship? And so that's the whole explanation why Jonah did not obey the word of God. Because the Ninevites were the enemy. God told him to go preach to him. He said, I can't do that because they hate the Jews. And if I do that, every other Jew will think I'm a, a traitor. I cannot go there because we don't hate anybody more than we hate the Ninevites. They are the terrorists. And so he ran because he had that flipped in his life. So I'm going to pray for us in closing. And I'm hoping that you would at least be open and I have to be, I can't tell you I've made this. I can't tell you I'm there. I was hoping that God can help me have a deep identity in him, deeper than what's normal in our society. And so we ask, why do young people just say, well, I know it's against the word of God, but it's what everybody's doing. Or why do I do things that's against the word of God, but everybody's doing it? I mean, I just can't blame young people. I do the same thing. But do I need to stop doing that? And need to say, it's God that I follow first, not just what's normal, not just what everybody's doing. And so we need to raise our children, all these beautiful children in the room. We've also never seen a place with more beautiful children. You have great children. That, that we need to raise them that their identity is follower of Jesus before their identity is the political party or being a person of Wyoming or Cody or America. They have to be followers of Christ. And obey him first. So Lord Jesus, I just come to you very humbly knowing I have a long ways to go. I don't want a shallow identity. Jonah was a man of God. He was a prophet. He was used by you, Lord. And all of us probably in this room have felt at times you've used us to speak to people about the Lord. Or we've, we've felt your presence with us. But Lord, we've, we've got it mixed up. And, and we've, even, we've even rejected wisdom that's come by common grace through those around us that are not believers. So, Lord, we understand that you love all, that you have gifted this world with beauty, grace, wisdom, insight, that even those that don't call upon your name can still be used to, to bring peace out of chaos, can still be used to, to bring a tolerability to this broken world. And so, Lord, may we be humble as believers in you, to receive from those that may not even be Christians and to understand why we see some who don't confess your name being better than we are even on our best day. So help us be good and do right and, and be holy as you are holy. And Lord, help us get this right in our own identity. What is our purpose? What is our place? And who are our people? Lord, we just talked about today, we got to get the purpose down. Our purpose is to glorify you, to be obedient to you, to follow you. And if somebody came into our office, came into our home, and said, who are you? May we also say, is there somebody else better to follow? And Jesus, 
we all in this room know there is nobody else better to follow. You are the way, the truth, the life. And so by your grace, Lord, may you shed upon us the ability to put you first. And our purpose is to glorify you. And that we would do the Christian thing when faced with conflicting resolution in our brain. Who do we be faithful to? May we all, is it to our people? Is it to our place? Or is it to our God? And may we always choose God. We thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.